Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. For whatever reason, I've had a lot of calls this summer about FMLA issues. Initially, I would say that the Family Medical Leave Act is arguably the most difficult and onerous for employers in terms of compliance of all the alphabet soup of laws governing the workplace today. It is also a law that even well-meaning employers often violate because many aspects of the law are counterintuitive and employers often fail to appreciate the risk of litigation even when they comply with the letter of the law. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about four FMLA traps that employers often fall into so you, listener, can avoid them. So let's jump right in. Number one, the coverage trap. Or maybe I should say coverage traps because there are multiple traps. Let's start with what should be a fairly straightforward analysis. Who is covered by the FMLA? An employer is covered by the FMLA if the employer has 50 or more employees. Employees are eligible for FMLA leave if they work for a covered employer for at least 12 months, have at least 1,250 hours of service with the employer during the 12 months before their FMLA leave starts, and work at a location where the employer has at least 50 employees within 75 miles. This all seems pretty simple, but there are several traps. First, Employers have to count every employee, including part-time, temporary, seasonal, and full-time employees. Also, in joint employment situations, for example, where a temp agency provides employees to an employer, both of the joint employers must count the employees toward FMLA eligibility. Another thing to remember is that a corporation is a single employer under the FMLA rather than its separate establishments or divisions. All employees of the corporation at all locations are counted for coverage purposes. In addition, separate businesses may be part of a single employer for FMLA purposes if they are an integrated employer. Factors to be considered in determining if separate businesses are an integrated employer include things such as common management, interrelation between operations, centralized control of labor relations, and the degree of common ownership or financial control. Now, in my experience, the most popular way for employers to avoid giving FMLA leave is the 50 employees within 75 miles rule. But again, there are traps to avoid. First, as with the analysis for employer coverage, you are counting all employees, including part-time, temporary, and seasonal employees. But here's the biggest trap with this analysis, and it's very common these days. An employee's personal residence is not a work site. For employees who work from home under telework arrangements, or other employees such as sales reps who may leave to work from and return to their residence, the work site is the office to which they report or from which they receive their assignments. This is also true for employees with no fixed work site, such as construction workers or airline flight crews. The site to which they report, from which their work is assigned, or the location to which they are assigned as their home base is their work site. The biggest issue here in recent years is the work-from-home arrangements, and the trap that gets many employers is assuming that all such employees are separate work sites for FMLA purposes. Trap number two. The Termination Upon Return from Leave Trap Here's a very common scenario. 
An employee goes out on FMLA leave, and while he or she is gone, a manager covers for the employee. In doing so, the manager discovers that the employee is not doing a good job, is doing something warranting immediate termination, or is simply unnecessary to the operation. The employer then decides that the employee should be terminated upon returning from leave. In most cases, there has been no prior discipline or even notice of the issues discovered during the leave. The question is always, can the employer terminate in this situation? Now, the technical legal answer is that the FMLA doesn't provide employees with any greater rights to reinstatement or continued employment. An employer may terminate an employee regardless of FMLA leave status, provided there is a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for termination. However, the practical answer is a little different because the fact of the matter is that if you terminate an employee upon their return from a covered leave, it creates an inference that the decision was retaliatory, and that inference may be difficult to overcome, especially if the employee had no prior issues. At the very least, you may end up with a lawsuit that will be expensive and difficult to defend. Of course, as with most legal issues, there is a continuum based on the facts. For example, you may have a very compelling case for termination of employment. I recall a case I was involved in where it was discovered during an FMLA-covered leave that the employee was embezzling significant sums of money from the employer. That one was easy. However, in cases where the misconduct is not as serious or not as clear, the cases can be more difficult to defend. Most difficult of all are the ones where the employer concludes that the employee is not really necessary and his or her position can be eliminated. Again, you may be able to defend such a case, but it will be high risk and a long, costly process in many instances. In any of these cases, the employer needs to have very clear objective evidence to support their position. Simply deciding to terminate at the end of a leave without careful analysis and consultation with counsel is a trap to avoid. Number three, the indefinite intermittent leave trap. The Americans with Disabilities Act and the FMLA go hand in hand. Most people are aware that if an employee exhausts their FMLA-covered leave, you should not move immediately to termination because they may be entitled to an accommodation under the ADA, and that accommodation may be an extension of additional unpaid leave. In general, courts have held that some amount of leave may be a reasonable accommodation, but the precise amount that is reasonable has been inconsistent from court to court. However, most courts agree that an indefinite leave is not a reasonable accommodation, and many employers are aware of this general rule. So in most cases, if an employee provides a doctor's note indicating they need an additional month or six months or even more after the end of their FMLA eligibility, employers need to consider the reasonableness of the request and whether it imposes an undue hardship. But if the employee says only they need to be on leave until they're able to return or the amount of leave cannot be determined, that is essentially a request for indefinite leave, which is not a reasonable accommodation. The trap that employers may fall into is conflating the ADA with the FMLA in this regard. For example, an employee may complete FMLA paperwork for intermittent leave that goes on for an indefinite period of time. The trap that some employers fall into is using the ADA analysis of indefinite leave as a basis for denying the FMLA request. This is not the correct approach. An employee may continue to use FMLA leave as long as they're eligible and have available leave time remaining. In February of this year, the DOL issued an opinion letter on this very issue. 
a letter considered a fact pattern where an employee who normally worked in excess of eight hours a day used intermittent FMLA leave to limit their workdays to eight hours or less per day due to a serious health condition. The DOL concluded that an eligible employee could use FMLA leave to work a reduced number of hours for an indefinite period of time as long as the employee did not exhaust their FMLA leave entitlement. The DOL letter did not include specific numbers, but assumed that the employee would normally work four 10-hour days per week, but with the use of intermittent leave, works eight-hour days. This means the employee would be using eight hours of intermittent FMLA leave per week. Assuming that this is the only FMLA leave used, and the employee otherwise maintains their eligibility, the employee could theoretically use FMLA leave to maintain this schedule indefinitely. And there's really not much an employer can do about that apart from tracking the leave and making sure FMLA paperwork is updated as often as permitted. Number four, the futile request trap. Employers who have employees who are not eligible for FMLA leave can sometimes be dismissive of requests for leave, but a recent case indicates that this may be a trap to avoid. The scenario can come up several ways. For example, you may have an employee who's only worked for the company for a month or two and is not FMLA eligible. If that employee requests leave for a serious health condition, can you simply ignore the request or even terminate the employee before they become eligible? Not a good idea. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled earlier this year in favor of expansive protections for employees asking for leave of absence even where the leave might not qualify for protection under the FMLA. In Millman v. Figer and Figer, the Sixth Circuit, which covers Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan, made it clear that an employee does not have to make a specific request for FMLA leave or even be entitled to take FMLA leave to qualify for protection from retaliation under the Act, as long as they make a request that raises the question of potential entitlement to FMLA leave, they're covered. In the Millman case, which I also discussed in Episode 40, a Michigan lawyer was terminated in March 2020, the same day she made a request for unpaid leave to care for her two-year-old son, who had a history of respiratory illness, and was, ex was uh, exhibiting symptoms associated with COVID-19. A lower court dismissed the case because the lawyer was not entitled to FMLA leave, but the Sixth Circuit reversed the decision. The key point from the court is that the FMLA's language requires employees to put their employers on notice of their desire to use their unpaid leave by making a formal request to the employer and that this is the first step in the process contemplated by the statute's procedural framework. The court noted that the steps of the process created by the FMLA, including the first step, that is the employee's initial request for leave, must be protected activity under the Act. And this is true whether or not the employee is ultimately entitled to any leave under the Act. The takeaway is that employers need to go through the motions of considering all leave requests and documenting the process even if they know the ultimate outcome will be that the employee is not entitled to leave. If an employee is not eligible for leave and does not come to work, the employer needs to address the issue through their attendance policy. Otherwise, employers open themselves up to claims that they retaliated against employees for asking for leave, which is protected under the FMLA. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts, 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.